So we are back in the book of Acts. Uh, we uh, left off in chapter 18 back in early December, right before uh, our Advent messages. Acts has shown us the birth of the church of Jesus Christ and then carried us through those, those first decades as the church begins to grow. And that history is just marked by mighty works of the Holy Spirit and miracles and powerful preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ and believers who go through severe persecution and treacherous journeys to, to difficult places that had never heard the gospel before. Uh, we're, we've seen all of that in the book of Acts. Some of the stories that we read sometimes, it, it's tempting for us as, as we go through them to, to sort of think that maybe, maybe it was more exciting to, to be a believer at that time, in that early church, uh, to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And it's, it's not hard to understand why some Christians, as they read the book of Acts, um, begin to lean toward sometimes charismatic or Pentecostal teaching. And a lot of that comes out of this desire to, to sort of feel something like they, they seem to see in the book of Acts, something that seems more, more exciting, if you will, in some way. And, and yet I would say to you, it's so important that we remember that the moments that we're reading about in Acts were, were just that. They were important moments through a long history of people who did what we are called to do. And that is to faithfully follow Jesus Christ and make disciples. The, the fundamental work of ministry is no different 2,000 years later. I've said it before, but it bears repeating that this book of Acts covers a span of about 30 years from the time of the ascension of Christ until about the year 60, 62 in that period when Paul is taken to Rome as a prisoner. And so we're covering three decades in a relatively short time. So this is a broad sweep of history, and it does include miraculous, amazing displays of the power of God through his spirit and his people, but much of Acts. And much of what is going on during this time period that Acts covers for us, that's not reported by Luke, is simply ordinary Christians living out faithful lives, doing what we've been called to do in making disciples for Jesus Christ and glorifying God. They lived in a different culture. They had different pressure points than we do. But, but in many ways, we are just like our first century ancestors. We're following Jesus Christ. We're striving to honor him and to make disciples in a world that is dark, that is filled with sin, and that opposes the gospel of Jesus Christ. Every day, we are, we are seeking grace from God and help from his spirit to be different and to walk like children of light. And, and, and so that's not always dramatic or exciting or even feels particularly profound when we're going to our job, when we're watching our kids, when we're at school, when we're doing the daily routines of life, but in them seeking to glorify Christ. Much of the time, what sets us apart as followers of Jesus Christ is simply doing the ordinary things that we do in faithfulness to our Lord. So in Acts chapter 18, we're going to go through the end of chapter 18 and the beginning of chapter 19. I want to point out five ordinary ways that God is at work through his people in the midst of a dark world. These are all 
applicable to us because we're going to see believers who are doing the things that we do. None of these involve unusual miracles, Not, notwithstanding the fact that any time a person comes to faith in Christ, that is a miraculous work of God's Spirit. But, but I'm saying here there's, there's nothing particularly dramatic throughout this story. It is believers doing ordinary things and God using them for the sake of his kingdom, believers living out their everyday lives. So let's set the scene of where we are. We left off in early December at verse 17 of Acts chapter 18. What we're going to do, Lord willing, the next few months is press through the rest of this 28 chapters in Acts. So we'll be picking up here in 18, getting into 19 today and pressing our way on through the rest of the book. But, but we're picking up this morning at the end of Paul's second missionary journey. This, this section that we're on is sort of the transition point. The map that you're looking at shows that the second missionary journey, and then we'll pick up as he starts his third journey. But it starts out in the far eastern side, the sort of top right corner of those um, sort of teal-colored arrows lines that are working through the, the Middle East there, and, and that would be in Antioch of Syria. That's sort of the sending church, the beginning point for Paul's ministry. That's the church that sent Paul out. If you go back to chapter 15 was, was where this started, and that was that separation between Paul and Barnabas. They have the disagreement over John Mark, and so Barnabas goes in one direction, Paul and Silas head to Derby and to Lystra, and you see as those arrows begin to move westward, they, they meet Timothy, they bring Timothy along. God, in the course of that travel, grants the vision of the man from Macedonia, from the region to the further west point, and, and he is calling them. He is asking for help, asking them to come over and give help. And so they travel to the far northwestern edge of that map, which is Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. And there's ministry in those cities. And when we pick up in verse 18, we'll see them down in Corinth. They go from Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea down to Athens, and then over to, to Corinth, which is that sort of uh, middle of the map western point is where they are when we pick up. Altogether, this is about a three-year journey. Again, we're reading like three chapters, and it seems to go by quickly. And so it's real tempting to condense this down. But this is from roughly the year 49 to about the year 52 before Paul finally leaves Corinth for what is the final leg of the trip back across the Mediterranean. Uh, by way of reminder, when he got to Corinth, he is severely threatened there. It isn't long after he arrives that there is this uprising of, of Jewish opposition to Paul that tries to stir up the governing authorities against him. They turn down the opposition. They say that they, that they don't see anything there, and so Paul is allowed to continue. And so he stays. And so if you'll pick up with me in Acts 18, verse 18. Acts 18, and we'll go through 18 to 23. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Cenchreae, he had cut his hair for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, it's in Ephesus, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. 
All right, uh, let's look at the map just one more time. The, the southwest corner there, center of the map, southwest in terms of sort of that, mm, I don't know if it's quite an oval shape, but, but the bottom left corner of the travels would be Athens and then Corinth and then Cancrae, which is the port city from which Paul leaves to go across the Aegean Sea. This is probably spring of the year 52. That's when travel on the seas would have picked back up, largely suspended over the winter, not a lot of travel being done, but in the spring that would have resumed. And Paul is, seems to be on a journey to get back to Antioch, particularly in time for the Passover and not be out at sea during the Passover. So here is the first of what I would suggest to you are five very ordinary ways that we see God bringing glory to himself as he's working through his people in the midst of this dark world. Four of these we'll see involve Paul, one will involve Priscilla and Aquila, and the first one is gratitude. And I draw this out of verse 18, which raises this interesting question when it says that Cancrei, he had cut his hair for he was under a vow. Paul cut his hair to fulfill a vow. What, what did that mean? Is this some kind of leftover Jewish ritual that, that Paul is, is, hasn't quite shaken off yet? Probably not. Um, Luke treats this very matter-of-factly. He doesn't give us much information about it except to say that Paul did it, and he did it for the purpose of a vow. I, I suspect the clue that Luke gives us to understand this is the beginning of the verse when it says, after this, after the, the magistrate in Corinth said, Paul, you can stay here. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers in Corinth and set sail for Syria. Think back to how this whole Macedonian part of the trip had gone for Paul. If you remember some of the stopping points on that, he is arrested and jailed in Philippi. You remember the story with the Philippian jailer, forced to leave the city. Gets to Thessalonica, has some effective ministry. Then there's this threatening mob that comes to the house where he's staying and begins to threaten the homeowner. And, and Paul is essentially forced to flee Thessalonica. Goes on to Berea, sort of a smaller place, probably intentionally to avoid a large city right now after those last two experiences. And yet even there, opponents from Thessalonica come down and they again disrupt Paul's ministry and they force him out of Berea and leaves at that point Silas and Timothy behind. He goes down to Athens from there. And, and, and ministry there seems to be fairly brief. Some believe, others mocked. And then he goes over to Corinth. In Corinth, the ministry starts out, as, as he often does in the Jewish synagogue, and there are believers. People come to faith in Christ. Even the ruler of the synagogue turns to Jesus Christ as Savior, and many are saved and baptized. It tells us back in verse 8, but then in verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 18, the inevitable happened. The Jews made, it says, a united attack. They had had enough of Paul. And so they drag him before the local magistrate there in Corinth, and, and they say that he is trying to overturn the government, that he is this insurrectionist, and, and they want him stopped. The magistrate, however, says Paul's done nothing wrong. I don't see anything wrong here. And so Paul is able to spend roughly two years in Corinth, second only to Ephesus and the amount of time that he will spend in one place evangelizing, teaching, and helping to build the church that's there. If you look back at verses 9 and 10, when Paul, remember, you had Thessalonica, you had all of the opposition, Philippi, Berea. Verse 9, Paul in Corinth, as soon as this uprising starts, the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, 
Go on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. God had made this promise to Paul in Corinth. You will stay here. You will have ministry, and no one will attack you. In all likelihood, that's, that's the point where the vow would probably come into play. Paul doing very much as you and I would do, an act of gratitude. And for Paul, that was to do what was along the lines of an, an Old Testament kind of Nazarite vow. In, in gratitude to you, Lord, for your promise, I will not cut my hair until such time as I am giving thanks to you for fulfilling this. I am going to trust in your protection and I will show you gratitude through this vow, and that's what he does, not at all unusual by Jewish custom. Luke does not tell us that's for sure in verse 18, but it does seem the fact that verse 18 begins by saying Paul stayed there until he was ready to move on and then left on his own timetable and then goes and cuts his hair for he is under a vow. This is Paul's very public acknowledgement of thanksgiving to God for the long, safe stay that he had in Corinth. He is giving thanks. He left Corinth on his own timetable, and he did not take for granted the fact that God had promised him exactly that. I am guaranteeing you will be safe in this city. One of the clearest ways that you and I can regularly, publicly demonstrate the greatness of our God and our worship of our God is by living and breathing out gratitude to him. It is by being thankful in all things, showing him that gratitude. It should be obvious to the people we work for, to the neighbors that we live by, to the students we go to class with, to so many others who see our lives, that we believe in a God who keeps me who guards me, who provides for me, who loves me, who works all things together for good, that I am resting in that God and I am thankful to God. Gratitude to God marks us out as different. Romans 1.21 tells us the, the, the exact opposite for those who reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. They do not show gratitude. It says they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. The unbeliever feels no compulsion to be showing gratitude to God. People will say, thank God, as sort of an off-the-cuff kind of statement in the same way they will use God's name in, in vain ways. And they'll just sort of blast that out. We as believers should be truly grateful to God for all things. The unbeliever shows no gratitude because they don't see God truly as the giver of life, as the sustainer of life, as the one who, who in his providence is working all things together for good. We are called to give thanks in all things. That's what Ephesians 5.20, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Humbly showing gratitude to God throughout all of life, one of the simplest and most ordinary ways that, that we can glorify him in the midst of a dark world. While the world will constantly use his name as, as maybe just an exclamation to show shock or surprise, they should see in us calling out and thanking God for all that he has done for who we are and what we have in Christ. So Paul's grateful. Second thing is his connection. 
So there's gratitude, and then there is connection to God's people that, again, is important to the Apostle Paul. So Paul, we we know, travels from Corinth and now briefly stays in Ephesus. We go back and look at the map, and Ephesus is probably right around the center of the map. You cross the Aegean Sea, and you come to Ephesus before he makes that swing down across the Mediterranean. Um, Paul had been gone at this point from the the beginning of his travel in Antioch, this whole trip, almost three years. And now he is sailing from Ephesus back across the Mediterranean, and he lands where you see the arrow there on the western point of the, the eastern point, I should say, of the Mediterranean. He lands at Caesarea, which is the nearest port city to Jerusalem. And so verse 21 tells us that, that they set sail, they land there. Luke implies that he goes up to the church in Jerusalem. If you look at the language in verse 22, when he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. Typically, New Testament language going up is is to Jerusalem, going down is going away from Jerusalem. So it appears that from Caesarea, he goes over and he reports to the leaders of the church in Jerusalem, and then he travels north to end this trip up in Antioch of Syria. Antioch closes the loop, and that marks the end of the, the second journey. But of much greater importance is verse 23 when it says, after spending some time there, then he departed. After spending some time in Antioch. This was months that happened. In all likelihood, it is the spring that he arrives there and he stays through the winter, not not going to do the journey that we we see him start on, going into the winter, largely overland journey at that point. So it is probably early in the next spring that he's leaving. And so there's great significance about this stay in Antioch. It's not just a timing thing due to the climate and the weather. As one writer puts it, Paul's stay probably does indicate a concern to maintain contact with the church's old centers. Paul's not a loner, founding a separate Pauline church, but a major figure in the one mission that began in Jerusalem and was effectively continued from Antioch. We mustn't forget that Antioch was the, the, sort of the starting point. That was where the Holy Spirit set apart Paul and Barnabas for ministry, to travel through Galatia and then into Macedonia, to some of the furthest reaches of, of, that the gospel had made. And it, it begins there. After his conversion, Paul did preach in Damascus. He preached a little bit in Jerusalem. But Antioch is where Barnabas went and brought Paul to. And that's the place where he is Um, sort of grounded and equipped and shaped and prepared to be the evangelist and shepherd that he will be in ministry. That That is his home sending church, for lack of a better description. And so Antioch is where Paul returns. It's where he goes to to describe the mighty work that God has been doing, to tell them about the last three years and what they have seen God do. It's there that he serves within this established body of believers. It's there that he is refreshed and equipped for further ministry. Antioch is the place where the believers had first laid hands on Paul, and it is likely the place that continued to pray for Paul as he went out and did the traveling and the work of ministry. First century, there's a slew of religious teachers, just as there always are, who are going about with all different philosophies and ideas about God or gods. And and what marked traveling ministers who preached the gospel of Jesus Christ 
was letters from churches. They were authenticated by a church sending with them something to say, this brother has been equipped in the sound doctrine of the truth of God's word. Listen to what he brings. We're going to see that down in verse 27 when Apollos is sent from Ephesus to Corinth. There's the sending with him of a letter that acknowledges God's working through him and him teaching the truth. Brothers, it says, encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. There's a deep connection to a local church. Folks, this applies to you and I, this this need for connection, just this ordinary act of being part of a local church. When, When I am looking at a new Christian book or some speaker who's coming to some Christian conference, speaking at some conference, one of the first things I look at in in that guy or that gal's biography is do they show some connection to a local church? Are, Are they somehow tied in with a group of believers who have acknowledged their giftedness, who have sent them out, if you will, who are praying for them and who are holding them accountable and who are walking alongside them as they do the work of ministry. If we believe that God has designed the church as evidenced through local churches like Grace to be the pillar and support of the truth, which is what 1 Timothy 3 says, that that's what the, the church is. It's that, that, that foundational place where the word of God is honored and, and taught accurately and held high in authority, then we should be eager to be connected to a local church. As we serve Christ among our neighbors, it should be our desire to to help draw them back, to to cause them to see the, the local church and bring them to participation in the body. I I, I don't mean to suggest that every breath of every ministry you do has to be within the walls of of the local church or even in the context of exactly a church ministry, but you should be established in a church. You should be accountable to a body of believers. You should be growing there. You should be, as Paul did, going back there so you you can report and say, here's what God is doing. Let me give testimony of how God is working in this way through this ministry. It's, it's there in the body that we should be seeking wisdom and encouragement and help as we do the work of ministry. And not just going out and sort of creating ministries on our own and doing what we think we, we, we want to best do and, and never connecting back to any kind of shepherding in the local church, any kind of wisdom or guidance. This is a corporate work. The world thrives on, on individual accomplishment. Doing what I do, boasting about it on social media, and, and even if not bragging, there's this persistent sense that I know how to do what's best. I don't need help. I don't have to connect with the local church. In fact, if I connect with the local church, they're only going to slow me down or they're only going to mess up my ministry of, of, of what I want to do. Whose ministry is it? Because if it is of God and he has called you to it, then then I would submit to you that he has also called you to to be connected into a local body of believers and and, and to serve within that body from which you can gain help and encouragement and strength and wisdom for the work of ministry. Gratitude connection third is intentionality. Ordinary ways that God works through his people to, to demonstrate his glory in a dark world, intentionality in making and growing disciples. Paul spends months in Antioch. He reconnects with his church. And then verse 23 says he leaves, he departs to go through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. He's going back to places that he had been to on the first missionary journey. So 
about six years ago now at this point. It's hard to imagine that that much time has passed, but it's roughly six years now, and he is now going back to those churches. The work of making disciples, the chief purpose to which the church of Jesus Christ has been called, the mission of of Grace Bible Church, what we believe our mission to be, making disciples, is evangelism, that is the proclamation of the gospel to those who need to know Jesus Christ as Savior, and it is edification, that is growing those disciples, helping them to grow into maturity in the likeness of Jesus Christ. Edification is exactly what we read about a few weeks ago back in Ephesians chapter 4. God's design is that Christians should grow, that we should continue to mature, and, and you're maturing is in knowing God's truth and in applying God's truth. Knowing sound doctrine, but then being convicted by it or encouraged by it or exhorted by it so that you grow in response to it. So you know the truth and God's spirit changes you with it. We're put into community so that we can do mutual edification, so we can help one another to grow, so we can speak truth to one another and help each other be more like Christ. So that's this this strengthening of disciples that when Paul says that he is leaving now to go to these places he has been, it is to strengthen them. It is to help them. That's so clear in verse 23. Because if it was only about evangelism, Paul didn't need to go back. Paul had, had been there. He had preached the gospel to people in those regions. He had preached it passionately. He had preached it accurately. People came to faith in Christ. They were in the kingdom. If that's all there was to disciple making, proclaim the gospel, people respond through faith and repentance and they believe and that's it. Paul has no reason to go back. There's no reason to go and embark on an arduous 1,500-mile trek over land. Why not just go to other places that haven't heard about Christ yet? Because this is part of disciple-making. This is where community and intentionality meet. He goes back now to strengthen those believers because it is just as important that he went there the first time to proclaim Christ, now to go back and to help them grow. He's not only intentional about the evangelism part, but he's intentional about teaching and strengthening. The Greek word for strengthening is is to fix something in place. It's to to pour the cement in the hole, to take the post and put it in the pole and then take the level and and, and make sure it's straight and square and then uh, hold it there. Set up whatever's needed to hold that post in place so that it's steadfast. That's what we're called to do. This isn't just a Pauline ministry, strengthening disciples. That's what you and I are called to do for those disciples who are younger in the faith and and who need to grow in truth. That's what you and I are called to do, to strengthen disciples who are being battered by trials and, and need believers to come alongside and encourage them with the word, to strengthen disciples when they are struggling with doubts and fears, to speak truth into their lives. We need to be intentional about these things. Need to have intentionality that says, I'm I'm going to be simple, ordinary ways, helping other believers in Christ to grow while I receive that same sort of edification from others. All right, let's read on. Verse 24, Acts 18, verse 24. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, being fervent in spirit. He spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. 
He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to disciples, the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Chronologically, Paul, you, you remember we saw the travel. He left Ephesus to go back to arrive in uh, Caesarea and then on up to Antioch and begin his journey. Sometime after Paul leaves Ephesus, this eloquent Jewish believer from Alexandria, which would have been in Egypt, who is well-trained. Egypt has a large, um, that, that part of Egypt, Alexandria, has a large Jewish population. He has apparently come to faith in Christ, and he is a powerful preacher. When it says that he's competent in verse 24, another way to translate the Greek there is that he is mighty. Um, he is very able. Competent somehow sounds to us like he sort of passed the, the competencies, the bare minimum in order to get in. It really has the idea of he is very able in the scriptures. Verse 25, when it says that he is fervent in spirit, in the Greek, it's the spirit that's there. You could say that this is fervent in, in, in speaking of his own spirit as in passionate. It also could easily mean that he has a fervency that is rooted in the spirit of God, that it is something that the Holy Spirit is bearing fruit in him about. But it also tells us that he doesn't, he doesn't have a, a full orb view in terms of doctrine. There's still some, some missing parts. One of these comes in this area of baptism. He has an understanding of John's baptism, he doesn't seem to fully grasp believer's baptism, or at least he doesn't understand the significance of believer's baptism. And I, I tend toward the latter because it doesn't describe him here as getting it and then being baptized. It does appear that he would have been baptized as a believer and yet didn't fully understand the mandate of it. That's the potential here. The, the point that we're going to see, Luke's not so much focused on the content of what's missing, it's what happens in light of this. John's baptism was an act of preparation. Remember John is preaching that prepare the way of the Lord. The Messiah is coming, so turn from your sins, be baptized, await the Messiah. In a moment, we're going to just go to the beginning of chapter 19 and see that there were these other followers who also understood John's baptism, understood that John was preparing the way, but had never gotten the rest of the story. They, they don't get the fulfillment of what John had promised, and so that's when Paul has to come and fill in the blanks for them. They're, they're different from Apollos. Here, Apollos does seem to have been taught about Jesus, and he's teaching others about Jesus. But his doctrine's incomplete. And so we see this wonderful husband and wife, Aquila and Priscilla, whom we met back at the beginning of chapter 18 when Paul first got to Corinth. They were fellow tent makers with Paul. He, he stayed with them. They provided a place for him. And, and they had been expelled from Rome. We talked about that, that that was the, during a, a difficult time for Jewish believers and, and Rome not wanting to deal with some of the controversy between Jewish believers and Jewish opponents just went ahead and threw people out. And so it appears that Quill and Priscilla were in Corinth where they met Paul because of that. Here they are now in Ephesus. Here is a sweet, ordinary way that God uses his people, that God uses you and I to, to bring glory to himself. We've seen gratitude, connection, intentionality, and fourth, I would say, gentleness, particularly in counsel. Gentleness in, in counsel, in serving one another, in helping, even, even correcting one another. 
This is just such a beautiful picture of God's grace. Helping people to be humble, to preserve the dignity of others, and to be protective of the word, clear about the authority of the word, deeply concerned for the truth. Aquila and Priscilla are that. And here's this this gifted, passionate speaker. He is bold, so bold to the point that we we already read there right at the end of, of, of chapter 18, that when he goes up to Corinth, he is publicly refuting the Jewish opponents who are trying to run counter to the gospel. Apollos is that kind of eloquent, strong speaker. And here you have Priscilla and Aquila. Put yourself in their situation. They they clearly see something about him. God has gifted this man with rhetorical skills, which are important in this culture, but not just skills. There's, There's passion here that's from the Spirit. And yet there's some deficiency in his teaching. What they saw was that Apollos was not malicious. He wasn't trying to proclaim error. He wasn't trying to mislead people. He just hadn't been fully taught in some of these things. He was not a false teacher who needed to be publicly denounced. He was a God-fearing preacher who still had some areas in which to learn and to grow. So they took Apollos aside and they filled in the gaps that they recognized in his teaching. This is, this is such a beautiful picture of grace on both sides. I, as I'm reading this and, and even thinking about it now, I can remember starting off in pastoral ministry in my 20s and remembering how gracious the folks were in that small congregation in Alaska to, to just sort of work alongside me and to help me and to, to bring me along in areas where I was deficient in my understanding. And this is what, what happens in, in terms of this exchange of grace. There's the care and compassion of Priscilla and Aquila. They are dedicated to God's truth. They've sat under Paul. They've, they're rich in doctrine and understanding, and so they care that God's word is handled accurately, but they are not so singularly focused on getting it right that they lose sight of gentleness. Not so wrapped up in making sure that you're accurate that they forget the person and run right over them. Instead, they come alongside Apollos in a very discreet way, and they they bring him into their house, and and they help him in a way that, that not only allows his ministry to continue, but to flourish. Then there's Apollos. I mean, this is, this is a smart guy. And here he is, by God's grace, sitting in whatever room he was in their house, listening as they are humbly saying, hey, on, on this, let, let, let me help you understand this a little bit better. Here is, here's how this fulfills Old Testament prophecy, or here's how the baptism of believers, why it is significant and why you need to teach it in this way. And he is receiving correction from them. Again, I would say to you, the fact that Luke doesn't focus on the content of the correction really means that he is trying to focus us in not so much on the issue, but on the exchange to cause us to just pause and admire what goes on here. This loving, gracious conversation that is sweet, simple Christian ministry at its best. A couple of Believers who are a little further along, a little more mature in their faith, coming alongside this active, engaged brother in Christ who is on fire and taking him in and saying, let me see if we can help you. This is so utterly contrary to the way our world works right now. Our culture is backbiting. It is quick to find fault. Criticism abounds. There is a lack of forgiveness everywhere. 
When someone says something that's thought to be inaccurate or culturally inappropriate, he or she will be pounced on. And even if there's a, a genuine apology out there in the secular world, that's usually not enough. There's just this relentless, mean-spirited way of attacking people who make mistakes, who don't understand fully. Listen, if, if there is false teaching under the, the banner of Christian teaching, if there is teaching that is misleading, that is twisting the scriptures, that is distorting the scriptures to harm people, it should be called out and rebuked for what it is. There is a place for public condemnation when the name of God is being dishonored. But the example here is one of a teacher who has good intentions. It's just got some lacking and needs help. And a couple of mature Christians come and they help him. It is a simple, beautiful picture of how you and I can do this, how we can counsel with gentleness, how we... Remember again, Aquila and Priscilla could have sat back and they could have gone home that night and said, ah, boy, he just, he's missing, he's missing it here. He doesn't understand this. He doesn't get that. They could have just let him flounder. And at some point he would have, he would have continued to preach and maybe caused confusion unintentionally to others. And instead in their kindness, they bring him in and they show him grace. That's how the body should function. All right, let's just head into the beginning of chapter 19 where we'll end for this morning. It happened, verse, verse 1, chapter 19, it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country, came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. He said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They said, no, we've not even heard there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what were you baptized? They said, John's baptism. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. A lot going on here. Let's just try to sum it up. Many months now have passed since Paul left Antioch, travels across the regions of Galatia, Phrygia. He's gone through the old territory, strengthening the disciples. Now has finally arrived at Ephesus, where he's going to stay for a long time. During the time before Paul got to Ephesus, Apollos left and went on to Corinth. Paul gets to Ephesus. He meets these 12 men who had, were very familiar with the preaching of John the Baptist. Prepare the way of the Lord. That, that Behold, there is this Lamb of God coming who takes away the sin of the world. But they didn't know the rest of the story. They didn't know who the Lamb was. They didn't know about Jesus. They apparently did not understand. And so Paul... The initial assumption in verse 1 is that he found some disciples. The reality is that typical word for disciples is probably proven incorrect. They actually weren't yet followers of Jesus Christ. They were, they were those who were eager to know what God was doing and yet had not been taught. They still needed the gospel. And so he told them the truth. They believed they received the Holy Spirit and were baptized. Speaking of tongues here seems to be, again, a, a distinguishing sort of marker sign that says now this, this sort of different group of, of those who had followed after John and, and, and been sort of his disciples now are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, they were not saved before. They are saved now by faith in Jesus Christ. All right, he goes on to Ephesus and goes into the synagogue. Last verses we'll read this morning, verses 8 through 10. He entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning, persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, 
speaking evil of the way before the congregation. He withdrew, took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Here we go, last of the five ordinary ways that God shows here in this passage that he can use us, five ordinary ways that God brings glory to himself. We've seen gratitude to God. We've seen connection to God's people, intentionality in making and strengthening disciples, gentleness and correction and counsel. And finally, I would submit to you, tenacity in ministry, God-given perseverance to stay the course and keep serving. Paul got three months in Ephesus. The first three months in the Sabbath, so 13 roughly gatherings in the synagogue. 13 Gatherings in the synagogue where Paul would have varying opportunities when he as the outside speaker would be given the floor to, to speak in reference to a passage from the Old Testament that had been given and he would be able to show Christ as the fulfillment. Three months to unfold how the Old Testament that they were reading Sabbath after Sabbath was pointing to Jesus Christ to unfold to them how they should be looking forward, as the Old Testament promised, to a servant who would come and suffer for the sins of his people. Three months to explain how Jesus of Nazareth was the one who had come and perfectly fulfilled God's law. Three months to explain the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and how that was the suffering of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of his people and how Jesus rose from the grave and ascended into heaven and would come again for his people. At the end of three months of reasoning and persuading and showing them these truths, Paul realized that his ministry at the synagogue in Ephesus was over. And so he withdrew. We know there was a church already established in Ephesus when Paul got there. They, they were the ones who sent Apollos up to, to Corinth. There was a community of believers who likely were added to during those three months as others came to faith in Christ despite the opposition Paul faced. God was still giving an open door for ministry. And Paul, when he withdrew from the synagogue, says he went to this public lecture hall where he could continue proclaiming Christ now to the, the, the Gentiles there in Ephesus. As it turned out, Paul's longest stay in any one city would be here. This is the the final focal point as we work through this ministry in Ephesus, and we'll, we'll see it again next week, this is the, the final place where Paul, as a free man, will speak forth the gospel and see Christ building the church in this way. Paul at the crossroads of trade and travel that Ephesus is and the, the impact of the ministry that God gave through Paul, it describes to us as we read in verse 10, would spread the gospel so that everyone in Asia had heard, and it would go from there throughout the Roman Empire. God was doing a mighty work of turning the world upside down. And he's using simple teaching from Paul, Aquila, Priscilla, Apollos, Peter. It's just people faithfully proclaiming the truth about Christ. But it wasn't easy. All the while, they are serving in a culture that is hostile, a culture that despises Christians, that hates their morality, that wants to silence their preaching. A culture where all kinds of other beliefs and philosophies could coexist, but the message 
of the cross of Jesus Christ was an intolerable offense to Gentiles and Jews. Does that sound familiar at all? God gave grace to Paul and to the others to have tenacity to persist in proclaiming Christ even when they were hated and mocked and expelled. When verse 9 says that, that some became stubborn and were speaking evil of the way before the congregation, it is the idea that they were slandering Paul. They were just lying about Paul and the other believers, making stuff up and slandering them to try to besmirch their name in the midst of the community of Ephesus to try to stop people from listening to them. And none of that stopped Christ from building his church through faithful servants doing ordinary things by the power of his spirit. Paul left the synagogue and he goes to a, a venue that probably gave him an even wider audience of people to hear what he told them about Jesus. He didn't quit. There were times, we've read about them, where Paul was physically assaulted, left for dead, chased out of cities. But when God gave him a place to speak and people to listen to him speaking, Paul stood fast. God gave to him this tenacity to stand there. And continue to proclaim. And he asked God for more opportunities to do so. That's a calling for you and I. That in, in ordinary ways, we would be pleading with God to have that spirit of tenacity as our culture turns darker and darker and wants to hear less and less about Jesus Christ. That God would give us the courage to still speak, to still be different covered a lot of ground this morning from middle of 18 to the middle of chapter 19 and over and over again it is God's people doing ordinary things God using them in simple ways no no profound displays of the supernatural here rather live out gratitude show people when you're thankful to God for what he's done let them hear that from your lips and see that in your life let others know that I, I owe it all to Christ Pursue connection with other believers. Settle in a local church where sound doctrine is proclaimed and, and serve God's people and love God's people. They long to be there with them. Be intentional about making disciples. Lord, give, give me people in my neighborhood, in my workplace, in my school. Give me people that I can, I can share Christ with, that I can speak the gospel to, and then, and then give me opportunities to help strengthen other believers, to come alongside and, and help them grow. Help me be gentle, gentle in counsel and correction. In a world where harsh rhetoric rules the day, may our, may our kindness to others, especially as we interact with each other and love each other through correction and counsel, may it be such evidence of God's grace. And finally, may God give us the grace and strength to persevere to stand for Christ and his gospel, to not shrink back from fear, but to boldly rest in our great Savior. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the good work established by your spirit through our ancestors in the faith. Thank you for those who, who faithfully, by Luke's reporting of these things, show us that, that the church of Jesus Christ was founded in the, the same way that you are working today, raising up people, filling them with your spirit, empowering them for ministry, imparting the word of God into them, 
and then giving them opportunities to speak it, to proclaim it. Lord, thank you for the power and the strength and the truth on which we stand, with which we have been equipped. Thank you that you have provided in full measure the same spirit who abided with the Apostle Paul, who was in that room in Aquila and Priscilla and Apollos as they discussed your word, who were the same spirit who was in that lecture hall in Ephesus as Christ was proclaimed, and believers as Paul was preaching were praying that God would move in the hearts of listeners. Same spirit who was in the churches in Galatia and Phrygia as they were learning more what it meant to walk with Christ and to live for Christ. Thank you that we have that same spirit, that you have equipped us with your word, now called us to live ordinary lives of faithfulness. Help us this week to be marked by our gratitude that people would see it in us. And, and, and our intention to, to serve others and to help them by our gentleness. In all these ways, would you get the glory? We lift up all these things to you in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.